Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert... Did you ever have a geology textbook or any kind of old science textbook that showed those illustrations way back in the day mm-hmm. of what the earth looked like, what the surface of the earth looked like, bef- you know, in previous geological eras? You go oh, way, yeah. way back. What was it like to be on planet Earth? And and you always see the like the volcanoes and they've mm-hmm. like caught right in the middle of an illustration, some kind of meteor bombardment. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. There's always some sort of cataclysmic uh, scenario going on. You know, something that makes for a nice painting other than just say, uh, you know, a dead sea. <laughs> yeah. And in the really early ones where you see the Earth as a kind of primordial landscape, there is very often I have found a red-orange tint to them. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Like, they, they, they paint the Earth at that period as a world of fire. Like, the, at one point, Earth was how we imagine hell. Yeah. You know, I believe the uh, the original Fantasia film has a has a segment in there, which is sort of the primordial Earth yeah. that uh, invokes some of this sort of imagery. This sort of red-orange. I think so. That may be a little more... Uh, Technicolor hued, but mm-hmm. uh, but I I think there's some orange in there for sure. Yeah, as if there's like an off-screen fire that's illuminating yeah. everything. <laughs> off-screen gels. But 
So I want to go back to say, okay, let's look at what we do know about the geological history of the Earth and try to paint a picture of the landscape from, say, uh, you know, maybe some early part of the Archean eon. So going way, way, way back. Uh, If you were Wells' time traveler in the time machine mm -hmm. and you accidentally, you know, you know, I don't leaned your leg up against the uh, the dial and (laughs) went back all the way, right? What would it be like? Well, first of all, we're going to be talking about a time when the Earth has a very different atmospheric composition. Mm-hmm. So it's got a reducing atmosphere with uh, almost no significant amount of free oxygen gas. And if you look across the landscape, you're going to see a lot of rocks, but you are not going to see visible plants or animals because the land part of the earth has not been colonized by life. You're going to see a hot, barren, rocky landscape But there is life in this period. So where's the life? Well, if you go to the coastal regions, you might see these strange vertical bulbs protruding up out of the tidal pools around the rocky coast. And they're like black brains that are just jutting up out of the surf. These are the stromatolites. Have you seen these, Robert? I don't think I've seen an image of this. Oh, yeah. So some of them still exist on Earth today. You can look at things that that there were probably things very much like the stromatolites. Just Google image search it. uh, It It's pretty cool. They're little black brains coming up out of the water. And these are these crazy bio-sedimentary structures made by mats of of cyanobacteria. You know, these, these small, tiny photosynthetic organisms trapping grains of minerals to build these bacteria mountain bulbs and it's probably hot it's probably mm-hmm. hot out but if you think about it this is a world completely without fire yeah there's no fire on planet earth and, at this it, time. and not just in a sense of like oh there are no there are no people having campfires there's no there's no there's no fire to be maintained no this is a time when Earth was a a fireless world, like fire was not possible. It was a time before fire. Yeah. So you can create some some very hot scenes in this uh, yeah. geological period, but there's not going to be any ignition. There will be no fire on planet Earth at this period. Yeah. As primordial as fire is to us, it, it, it's, it's just mind boggling to think back on a time when it didn't exist. It was, it's almost as if it had not been invented yet. Yeah. And that's crazy because how could there be a world without fire? Fire is not like an invention of human beings, as you, as you just alluded to. It's a natural product of chemistry. It, it seems like it should be something that's just universal. There should be fire everywhere, right? It's physics and chemistry, but I guess we should look at what it takes to make a fire. Yeah. So uh, most people are probably familiar with this. You have a, have three prerequisites. For fire, the fire pyramid. Yeah, the, the fire, fire pyramid, the fire triforce, the fire triangle. Yeah, when we were researching this, I found some rather uh, elaborate ways to say, "Hey, the stuff that makes a fire." Uh, so you got to have your heat, obviously. Right. That's one. That's one line. Mm-hmm. You got to have your fuel. Another. What is burning? You got to have something that burns, mm-hmm. and you have to have oxygen. Yeah. For that fire to consume, an oxidizer. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, so th- one of the things that you can see from this, though, is that fire is the interaction of these three elements. Yeah. It's not so much a thing in itself as it is a- an event or a process. It's an interaction between these three elements. And that's kind of counterintuitive to us because, like, 
when you carry a torch, it, it feels like you're carrying a substance right. of something somewhere. Yeah, you, you don't think of it as, as the same as being, a, a, say, an explosion, which, yeah. of course, is also a, a chemical reaction, but it's more of an instantaneous effect. A fire is almost, you could almost think of it as a, as, as a, an explosion in slow motion or something like that, you know? it's uh, But but since it, it, it takes place over time, we think of it as a thing, as a substance. Right. Uh, but it is an interaction. So l- let's look a little deeper at this interaction. What happens? when a fire starts. Well, you know, it comes back to those three ingredients we were talking about. Uh, and it's interesting to, to break down each of those and look at where they come in to the long, deep history of planet Earth. Okay, well, one source is heat. That's okay. not really a problem. Right, that's Earth. never really been a problem, obviously, on the planet. Uh, you know, a spark will do it. Lightning strikes, volcanic activity, sparking rocks, like one rock falling down, scraping another one, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. Meteorites, all of these have taken place throughout Earth's deep history. So that's, that's never been, we've never wanted for heat. Okay, so we've got heat, but what about the other two planks, oxygen and fuel? Well, as we alluded to earlier, you had a different atmosphere back exactly, then. Exactly, yeah. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, until... F- 540 million years ago, that's the beginning of the Paleozoic era, that uh, photosynthetic organisms essentially terraformed the planet's atmosphere into an oxygenated balance capable of providing the necessary the necessary second ingredient for fire, that being oxygen. Right. They did to Earth what, what we might want to do to Mars in a thousand years or something. Yeah. You know, transformed it, changed its atmosphere through some chemical engineering. And uh, and one thing you might have noticed is in, when I was painting the picture earlier, you know, I said we had some photosynthetic organisms, but we didn't really have an oxygen atmosphere yet. It took a while, right? So uh, photosynthetic organisms appeared and they were creating some oxygen. But for a long time, it seemed like oxygen was accumulating in the oceans or sort of uh, reacting with stuff on the surface of the earth and oxidizing it. But over time, we did start to build up a serious oxygen atmosphere. And uh, this didn't go so well for a lot of organisms, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was uh, an apocalypse yeah. of sorts for, great for everything poisoning. that came before. Yeah, great poisoning of everything that came before. But you know, okay, so, so at this point, we've got our, we've got our heat and we finally have our oxygen available. And this of course brings us to fuel. What is actually going to burn? Yeah, you can't burn rocks. Right. Have you it, ever tried? <laughs> doesn't work out so well. Uh, this is actually the last ingredient that became available for fire. Uh, since you gotta have, uh, terrestrial plant matter that builds up and, you know, is, is burnable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Terrestrial plant matter was scarce in this early age. In fact, the earliest evidence of charred vegetation dates back uh, a mere 440 million years ago. That's not that long ago. Yeah. I mean, geologically speaking. Now, so, that's the evidence, of course. Right. But yeah. it, so if the Earth has been here 4.5 billion years, and so it's only been within the last billion years that we have evidence of fire on Earth. Right. But then it took off after that, so as we'll be exploring. <laughs> it got huge. It it's got really huge. big. Yeah, it, it became a rather big deal. Um, it came to define the new Earth. You had geologic uh, ages in which fluctuating oxygen levels contributed to the rise and fall of terrestrial burn rates. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, humans eventually came along. They took a shine to fire, and the rest is history. You know, I think it's interesting to think about Earth as the fire planet, right? Because where where else in the universe do we know for sure there is fire? It is my understanding that there is nowhere else in the universe that we know for sure has fire. Now, there could be fire. There could be. But... What you, you would need that triangle. You'd right. need the fuel, you'd need the the oxidizer uh, or the oxygen, and you'd need the heat. 
And I, that just, I don't know of anywhere else other than Earth that you have all three of those things. Right. Uh, we, yeah, we do not know of a place that has fire other than the Earth right now. It may be out there. Many people believe it exists. But for now, there is no such thing as extraterrestrial fire. You know, they call Earth the water planet, but this makes me think that we yeah. should also think of it as the fire planet. I mean, e- fire seems even more unique to Earth than water does. There's right. I- water ice on plenty of other planets or uh, moons and stuff in the solar system. Right. And, of course, one can certainly imagine a water world uh, in which fire is possible, but even more rare. Because if you, if you just have oceans, if you just don't have... Wet. Well, just too wet, or if you don't have plenty of dried materials around, they're gonna they're gonna be able to fill that uh, that uh, third notch uh, on the ingredients list, and uh, it's not gonna happen. Yeah, this also makes me think about how the atmospheric composition and just the basic nature of a planet creates the environment uh, under which fire can arise, but also it sort of turns the knobs, right? It's not just like you can have fire or you can't. Mm-hmm. Fire is a chemical reaction, and chemical reactions tend to be uh, – there tend to be degrees of susceptibility to them, right? right? Like you can increase all of the the catalytic conditions that make this chemical reaction ripe to take place. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, can you imagine a science fiction story? Can you imagine? Of course you can. You have a great <laughs> imagination. Let's imagine a science fiction story where space space explorers, they're flying around. They're looking for a safe planet they can land on with a breathing atmosphere because they're having engine trouble or something. Mm-hmm. And the only planet nearby is this planet that has an oxygen atmosphere. But they sit down and they realize, whoa, it's got a really oxygen-rich atmosphere. So not just oxygen, but much higher concentrations of oh. oxygen than we're used to in Earth's atmosphere today. And then let's also say it's got high temperatures and low moisture. You could actually have a sort of maximally flammable planet, uh, right? Because <laughs> right, in, it would be yeah. For the same reason, one does not smoke while using an, an oxygen mask. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and also for the same reason that you can see tragedies in, like, NASA history, for example. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the crew deaths during testing for the Apollo 1 mission, they were, during testing for this mission, they were, they were trying to test the capsule for liftoff, and there was a cabin fire. It was probably ignited by a spark from some bad wiring, but the problem was that the capsule was filled with a pure oxygen environment, which combined with the high pressure and then the presence of flammable materials in the cabin meant that any fire could just completely easily rage out of control in, in, a, in a heartbeat. And that's exactly what happened. And it killed the three astronauts while they were testing on in January 1967. And that was uh, Grissom, White and Chafee. And so you can imagine in a, in a whole planet like this, if like your whole planet's atmosphere is somewhere closer to what it was like in that Apollo one test cabin, that's yeah. not, a, that's not an easy place to live, right? No, I mean, you'd have to wander, hostile environment. Right. Wander around like, are, am I afraid of dropping a tool and accidentally causing a spark? <laughs> and you'd have to also be careful where you put your compost. Uh, that's of course, cause uh, that's another way that you can have, uh, a combustion, the sort of spontaneous combustion that occurs, uh, certainly with compost, hay bales, uh, but in, arguably with, uh, people as well. Uh, spontaneous human combustion, which is a, another topic. Wait. Robert, you've got to give me the straight on this, okay? Spontaneous human combustion. Is it real or not? It's been a while since I researched it. We have, we have an older episode on it, uh, which I can link to on the landing page for this episode. Uh, as I recall, it is certainly possible, mm-hmm. 
but it gets difficult when you look at individual instances because a lot of times there are other explanations that could could be in, in place. Yeah, I remember some skeptical takes, uh, at least thinking that I'd come across people saying, you know, almost all these cases can be explained just by people accidentally setting fire yeah. to their clothes. Someone or smoking something. in bed, that sort of thing. Um, as I recall, though, there are some there are some theories for how it could take how it could occur. Uh huh. But uh, it's kind of a case by case uh, situation, though. Yeah. So if it can happen with fertilizer, could happen with us. Yeah. If your body is enough like fertilizer, then you uh, then then you could go up like a torch. I think my body is much like fertilizer. <laughs> All right. We're going to do a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to discuss how fire shaped life on Earth. Want to position yourself for career success? Master the fundamentals of business with HBX Core, a three-course online program developed by Harvard Business School faculty. Immerse yourself in real-world case studies as you dive into business analytics, economics for managers, and financial accounting, the three courses that Harvard Business School faculty determined were essential to becoming fluent in the language of business. The innovative HBX online platform was developed from the ground up to foster real-time peer-to-peer engagement and interaction. Complete the coursework on your own time while meeting regular deadlines, network with a global cohort of peers, and earn a credential from HBX and Harvard Business School after successful completion of the program. Boost your resume, grow your network, and advance your career with the HBX core credential from HBX and Harvard Business School. To learn more, visit abouthbx.com slash howstuffworks. Okay, we're back. So today uh, in this episode, we're going to be referring to this excellent 2009 paper from Bioscience called A Burning Story, which would be a great Pixar movie. <laughs> but uh, it's A Burning Story, colon, The Role of Fire in the History of Life by Julie G. Pausas and John E. Keeley. And I want to start with a quote that they have from their paper. They, they write, quote, A world without fires is like a sphere without roundness. That is, we cannot imagine it. Wildfires have shaped our world since long before humans emerged. We cannot understand our biota, uh, and biota means all of the, the biomass that makes up uh, a certain area, you know, all, all of the life there. Mm-hmm. They say we cannot understand our biota in terms of adaptations and ecosystem distribution without including fire as a process in the natural history of the planet. So there they're saying fire is not just something that happens occasionally and, you know, it's suddenly like, oh, there's a fire, freak out, got to run from it. Mm-hmm. They're, they're casting fire more as a very standard, regular part of Earth life that shaped the life forms that exist on the planet today. Yeah, because think, think back to the three ingredients. Think back to the, the, the ways that those things occur. Um, so you have lightning strikes, meteorites. Etc. Volcanic activity. Mm-hmm. These are all things that can that can and do touch off natural wildfires, and so periodic wildfires in the in the, the exact uh, uh, you know the schedule of the wildfires, the exact regime of the wildfires, which we'll get into a bit, will vary. But you're going to have whole ecosystems that evolve with fire being in play. Mm-hmm. Now. On our planet, it's important to note there is no such thing as a fireproof organism. And certainly, we have some wonderful examples of of uh, creatures in sci-fi and fantasy that you know that roll around in fire. Or I'm, I'm particularly thinking of uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, you have a uh, you know an entire uh, plane of fire, and there are all these like yeah. salamander-like beings that live there and fire elementals. But life as we know it here on Earth 
is not so rugged. Now, I'm trying to think what that would even be. Let, let's cut out the magic. No Dungeons and Dragons okay. stuff. No, mm-hmm. no, no dark uh, curses or protections. Just biologically, could there be an organism that survives in fire? I don't really see how that would happen unless maybe if it's something kind of like a weird, like, combination of a turtle yeah. and uh, like BB-8 from The Force Awakens. So it's like a shell all around with maybe some holes that it can slide open and close or something. Yeah, I mean, we certainly have species that are fire resistant and mm-hmm. we have plenty of species that are able to, to varying degrees, game wildfires and certainly exploit the benefits of wildfires. But we have we have nothing that is fireproof, nothing that that uh, that that is is not destroyed by the flame if right. the flame is present in sufficient amounts. Right, exactly. So fire excites molecules. The structure of our molecules is rather important to us. You'd have to find some organism to which I guess it's surrounded by molecules that can be burned and don't really matter. Yeah, fire, and this is important for the ways that humans use fire. Like fire breaks things down. Yeah, fire changes the chemistry of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's, we're just not, uh, I mean, we're just highly susceptible to that. Nevertheless, the, the fire world is a real part of the world. And it's something that all kinds of organisms have come up with these adaptations to. So like, like we said, there's no fireproof organism, but w- what does it mean to be a fire resistant organism? Okay. Well, one uh, example that often comes up are, are sequoias. Okay. So, mm. So some plant species actually depend on fire as part of the reproductive cycle, while some uh, simply evolved long ago to weather regular wildfires. So, so some can get through it. Right. Uh, sequoia seeds, for example, actually remain dormant until fire breaks down the outer coating. Uh, as such, a good control burn uh, can can also aid the environment by stimulating local vegetation. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and on, on top of this, you have a situation where the, the fire is going to uh, it, it's not going to burn down the larger plants in uh, various forest environments. They're just mm-hmm. going to be scorched, and yes, some will succumb. But for the most part, it's going to be the smaller things that get burned away, the undergrowth. Right. And then that opens up that area for new vegetation to move in. It also allows various animals uh, uh, new opportunities to thrive. Mm-hmm. So it it's a dynamic aspect of of many different environments and and it's not just limited like it's easy to think oh well you know like california mm-hmm. dry hills or grasslands and certainly those are areas dry areas with vegetation are going to be very susceptible to, to wildfire but wildfire also exists in tropical jungle environments there are plenty of examples of that because yeah. those areas are going to have dry spells as well there's going to be combustible materials and therefore it's a part of those environments as, as well yeah, totally. You see it in grasslands. You see it in savannas. There is such a thing as desert fire. And also one of the things about fire on Earth is that wildfires trigger cycles of wildfires. Fire begets fire in a mm-hmm. certain way, uh, because for one thing, you can look at how uh, fire prevents bigger fires, if right. this makes any sense. And this is another reason for controlled burns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, like small fires in a certain area will clean out the, uh, the the underbrush, you know, dry vegetation near the ground that if uh, allowed to grow unchecked by fire could eventually lead to larger fires that actually catch, you know, the crowns of trees on fire. And those right. become very hot and spread very uncontrollably. Yeah, it's there was 
there was certainly a time in like forest management and agriculture where I think we we just we just said okay fires are bad we're gonna we're gonna cut them out wherever possible mm-hmm. but yeah you just you just destabilize the natural environment and the environment's ability to roll with periodic wildfires. And on the the subject of periodic wildfires, we mentioned regimes of fire right. earlier, and that's, that's a, a it's a great term. Yeah, because it it, it it sounds like you know fire demons ruling There's over a, a, a broken world. Uh huh. A new flaming king. Yeah. Ascends to the throne of coals. Yeah, yeah. It, that's some dark imagery, Joe. But uh, but it's a good day for that sort of thing. Um, yeah. So you have. Um, you have a single forest fire. That's an event, just a fire event. But then a series of fires over time, that's a fire regime. Right. And that, a fire regime, that is what uh, organisms evolve to roll with. Right. Not an individual fire, but but regimes of fire. It's sort of like how uh, organisms are not going to be adapted to an individual storm, but they will be in, uh, adapted to the local climate. Right. Yeah. And of course, regimes are going to vary and some areas, some areas are going to be more prone to wildfires than others, as we discussed, because uh, you're talking about, about, uh, various factors here. Human agriculture, of course, alters the situation somewhat. You have, uh, interactions of, uh, humidity conditions, fuels, ignition sources. All of these determine a, a, a particular region's fire regime. And you also have to take into account topography and wind, like what's going to, uh, how are those going to affect the spread of the flames? Mm-hmm. And certainly, I think any of our listeners who live in more in, in places where wildfires are more of a regular concern, uh, you know, instantly think about California, Arizona, places like that, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to be far more familiar with these realities than uh, than a, a lot of our listeners. You know, one of the craziest looking wildfires I've ever seen was from some footage I saw of wildfire in Australia. Have you ever seen video of like the uh, the Australian firestorms in like Canberra? Oh, I don't think I have. Oh man, it's it's otherworldly. It does not look like planet Earth. Where mm-hmm. it it is like those old illustrations from the uh, previous geological eras, where the entire sky is orange and and like flames and sparks are just whipping around in the wind. Uh, it it is unreal. You, you should look that up. Fun fact: I bring up uh, Ian and Banks a lot in his uh, culture series of novels because he always right. has some fabulous uh, sci-fi visions that he's discussing, be it a technology or certainly visions of alien life and alien worlds. Mm-hmm. And in his just absolutely excellent book, The Player of Games, uh, there is a there's a planet that pops in this, and it's a, it's a it's a water world. So you just have this ring of land with this constant fire that moves all the way around it, and it's an essential part of the. Uh, uh, of of the the ecosystem. So if the fire were to get put out, that seems like that could just be like the end of life, or terrestrial life on this planet. Yeah, yeah. It it th- like th- this alien vision of it is even more dependent on fire than anything we could uh, you know experience here on, on Earth. But it serves as a kind of an interesting model to uh, uh, to exemplify the, the the importance of wildfires in our own ecosystem. To say that yes, they do occur. And they, and in the appropriate uh, cycles, they play an important role. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, there will be more about alien worlds and fire. Hey, I'm Chuck. And I'm Josh. And we're the host of Stuff You Should Know, the podcast. That's right. And if you're into understanding cool and unusual and seemingly ordinary and even boring things that are made interesting, you should check us out. Please and thank you. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, anywhere you get podcasts. All right, we're back. Okay, Robert, I have a question for you. Yes. Because thinking about alien worlds and fire, 
And the fact that we live on the only fire world yes. that we know of. And, and the fact that we know of a time in the history of the Earth where fire was not possible on this planet. Mm-hmm. It was just chemically not going to happen. Um, my question is, could technological civilization arise on a planet that doesn't permit fire? Huh. So we think about um, other planets and other other biologies. We're always considering this. You know, we're, we're like, oh, you know, our closed minds. We think everybody's got to be like us in the universe in order to have some kind of technological intelligence. I, I Maybe our, our minds are not too closed. <laughs> maybe they're too open when we're trying to imagine, uh, you know, powerful alien technologies, aliens with spaceships and radio transmitters and stuff like that arising on planets that have different atmospheric compositions or might be water worlds or something like that. Because I just started to think, how on Earth could we – on Earth, uh, pun not <laughs> intended – how could we possibly – have generated technology on this planet without the chemical readiness to create fire in our atmosphere. Just imagine the life forms that arise on a planet with a non-oxygen atmosphere and no other gases that could play the role of an oxidizer. First of all, you've got the question about how how would they cook food and stuff like that. And actually, we're going to do this is going to be a two part episode about fire. In the second episode, we're going to talk more about the ideas of how cooking informed the, in, the right. intelligent beings we became. But also, here's a maybe even a much bigger one. What about smelting ore to create metal tools? Yeah, like how do you create metal tools without fire? You might be sitting there thinking for a second, like, well, you know, there's other hot things and. It, uh, really? What else could you use? Are you saying you would stand over a volcano and somehow find a way to use that to create metal tools? <laughs> I mean, it, it is, it starts becoming very difficult trying to figure out how you would do this. And then without metal tools, could you actually expect discoveries of things like electricity, optics, fundamental forces? Um, so it just made me wonder, well, is there any non-fire equivalent? Is there a margarine of fire in the chemistry that's available to this universe? You know, is there some other universal exothermic chemical reaction, a reaction that puts off heat that that can be transported around as easily as fire and started as easily as fire? Yeah, I I don't know. It's easy to think of of various sci-fi visions of sort of, you know, organic, purely organic species that have organic spaceships and organic technology. And, you know, I'm not totally discounting that vision, but when you start breaking it down and, and look at look at the mo- only model we have for technological ascension, mm-hmm. the, the role of fire just cannot be divided from it. Right. Yeah. We're, 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 we're forced into one of the scenarios where we just we, we cannot envision a, or it's very difficult to envision another system that works. You know, I did think of one example, one counterexample for cooking. Yeah. And it's when when uh, Rachel and I were in Iceland, we were we went to a little town called Hveragerthi, oh. where they have a basket that you can <laughs> boil an egg in. Well, it's not boiled, where you can steam an egg by putting in a, it in a basket that hangs over a geothermal vent that okay. steam comes out of. Yeah, I could see that working. I, I thought you were going to go with the other like fermentation methods of uh, preparing food, because certainly you could make an argument there, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that that's not cooking. Well, it's it in a way it's cooking. It's a different... <laughs> 
It's it's cuisine. It's but. cuisine, yeah. But it, yeah, it's, it's rather different from cooking, I guess. Uh, so we were talking about this the other day, and we and we were looking around and thinking, you know, somebody somebody has to have tackled this. There has to be a scientist out there who's really gone in deep on this question of technological without fire. No, I I gotta say, Robert, this is all you. I had no idea anybody would have written on this. Well, uh, yeah, because I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, to find mm-hmm. this uh, wonderful article by um, a, a scientist by the name of Michael D. Sword. Swords. swords like the weapon. Right. Uh, is titled, Could Extraterrestrial Intelligences Be Expected to Breathe Our Air? And it was published in a 1995 edition of the Journal of Scientific Exploration. Okay, now we should put up a big skeptics asterisk here <laughs> and say that, uh, that the Journal of Scientific Exploration is a publication that deals with fringe, fringe science like ufology and the paranormal. The horizons of science, as e- they, they would put it. Yes, <laughs> and it has been accused by critics of promulgating pseudo science. Uh, I I don't know how to adjudicate that here, but we don't want to give the impression of an endorsement in general of this journal or its contents. Uh, Just put up this big red asterisk on the credentials of the journal in general, but we do want to talk about this one very interesting and at least seemingly solid paper. Yeah, and and likewise, Swords himself is certainly no pure skeptic either. He uh, is, was an editor for the Journal of UFO, UFO Studies, a board member of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies. Uh, so he's very much a man who wants to believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's retired now, but uh, at the time of this publication, he was with Western Michigan University. Uh, and, uh, and, and yeah, I think the, the paper itself, though. Like, so, so a gainfully employed scholar. Right, right. So this is not like a guy in a cabin somewhere writing about UFOs. This is this is a and this was and also it's worth pointing out this again. This is a peer reviewed journal, mm-hmm. you know, for what it's worth. But again, when you when you look at the actual paper, I think the paper holds up pretty well. Well, yeah, well, let's let's see what it says. Maybe okay. you can judge for yourself. All right. So. Swords, whose uh, doctorate studies uh, centered around the history of technology, points out in this article that the essential nature of fire is often overlooked by academics. He said, quote, the role of fire is partially obvious and maybe not so obvious. The maybe not is the necessity of fire, control fire, to manipulate materials and break them down into their elemental components. Mm-hmm. Breaking materials down is the road, the only road to establishing material technology. That makes sense to me. I yeah. think that's in line with what I was just saying. Yeah, he, he mentions that uh, that critics of this only road approach, though, insist that there are alternatives, uh, such as depending on additive approaches, uh, the addition of one substance to another, uh, components, elements, alloys, etc., as a means uh, for new material sciences without fire. Wait, how would you create alloys without fire? Well, that's the that's the <laughs> argument point, isn't it? Uh, so this is this is how he responds to those critics. He says. And, and he has some wonderful um, uh, vinegar here to his response. Okay. He says, I am open to someone demonstrating this sort of non-fire-based material science, but where these components, elements, and alloys will originally come from without fire somewhere down the road remains a complete puzzle to me. It is in the breakage, manipulation, and recombination of materials that one achieves is, achieves metallurgy, much of chemistry, glass technology, polymers, etc., Without fire leading to metals technology, there is no controlled electricity, no electric age, and certainly no nuclear age. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's a totally different thing here, too. Uh, nuclear age makes me think about the energy we use to power our society, not just the creation of tools, but we depend on uh, on free access to, to easy energy 
for everything that makes modern life, you know, easily livable and modern science easy to do and with all the equipment and electronics and stuff like that we have. Uh, in, in a world without that, what would your energy source be? I mean, I guess you could have, I don't know, hydroelectric dams, but if you don't have metals to conduct, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I'm 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 at a loss. Yeah, uh, he kind of summarizes this uh, all by saying, "All technology on a fireless world would be the simple utilization of what nature gives one—an almost passive interaction. Fire is the gate to the possibility of high technology, the only gate." So, so the idea is that certainly you could have individuals finding stuff, exploiting natural environments, boiling their fish in a vent or what have you, uh-huh. but. Can they actually make anything? Can they actually achieve high technology? Can they build a spaceship or, say, even a toaster? Uh, the argument Swords would make is no. And uh, he sort of, and he, and he also goes on to sort of challenge anyone out there. Show me an idea that's not complete, like fantasy sci-fi, uh, and I will accept it, but I haven't seen it yet. Well, I guess for me, the question would be looking at chemistry. I mean, I was trying to find, is there an example of something else like fire, again, with fire not being a substance so much as a chemical reaction, an interaction, a process? Is there another universal exothermic chemical reaction you could come up with where, well, if you mix heat and these other two readily available types of substances, uh, you will get a an easy to produce chemical reaction that heats things up and you can do it almost anytime, anywhere on the planet. I don't know. I, I don't know of any evidence of what that would be, but perhaps there is such a thing. Yeah, he, he goes on in, in his paper to say, I mean, basically, you need to have that free oxygen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can, you can, there, there are arguments for other com- combustion supporters, chlorine and other halogens mainly, he says, but, uh, but really you keep coming back to the necessity for oxygen. Mm-hmm. Now, he also brings up, we mentioned sea worlds earlier, the, or, or right. water worlds or whatever you want to call them. Um, and, and in a past episode, we tried to imagine this too. If you had like a dolphin race, on a, on a, on a water world, would they be capable of achieving technology? Would mermaids uh, be, be able to build their cities? Oh, like a, like a race of intelligent dolphin creatures, not yeah. like a dolphin race, like they're trying to get to the finish line. No, no, not, not a, not a, not a race in that sense, but, but a, a, a civilization. dolphin civilization. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Would that be possible? Or mermaids or deep ones or whatever, uh, ver- vision of, uh, <laughs> undersea life you want to, uh, toy with here. Cthulhu has no technology. Yeah, I mean, th- that would be the argument here, because this is what uh, what um, old Mike Swords has to say. He says, for those who suggest that an alternative world not caring about such wildfires because it was all oceanic is a possibility for a high oxygen atmosphere, I say the idea is clever, but all wet. The technological life form needs to control fire where it lives. Underwater seems a poor combustion environment. Occasional fire-seeking dog paddling at the surface seems worse. We need a land animal, and we therefore need a well-behaving atmosphere with oxygen in a controlled fire zone. Hmm. So that kind of uh, that that kind of underlines it rather well, I think. Okay, well, so it seems like uh, Dr. Swords here is agreeing with our intuitions about the necessity of fire for the development of a technological civilization. But uh, I I still I would like to hear arguments to the contrary. I haven't found any. I don't know if you can. I did not run across any other uh, in any other voices on this. Uh, But, uh, yeah, if if you all out there have any have any great ideas about how. No, here's the way they could do it. Here's (laughs) how you could make metal tools without fire. Uh, I would love to hear them. Yeah, I'm fascinated. And I I don't think uh, Swords has necessarily drop the final word here. No. But no. 
but so far I remain with my mind unchanged. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and certainly I'm, there have to be some great examples from sci-fi uh, out there as well uh, with varying levels of you know scientific authenticity but I'd love to love to hear those models okay I mentioned this earlier in the episode I think but this is actually going to be part one of a two-part episode we're doing about the scientific history of fire where this time we tried to look a little bit more at the chemistry of the world the atmosphere possibilities on an uh, on a no oxygen planet and how fire has shaped life but next time we are going to be turning our eye to the world of the human the divine spark and what fire means for human life in the meantime, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and more. And as always, if you want to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other, or with a great idea about how aliens on an oxygen-free, fireproof world can uh, make some exothermic reactions and get some swords, maybe, or other metal metal tools, <laughs> uh, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuff works.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.